Escape velocity. Oh, look at us. Look at us just beaming with pride at our fair city. <sighs> I, you know, I knew we would achieve greatness one day. Yep. And now that day has finally come. We didn't quite get it with the weaker thans. We thought we we thought we had it there. Yeah, but we were close. We were within a hair. Just shy of number one. Yeah. But now that Winnipeg has been crowned Canada's most racist city? If you, I mean, if people don't live in Winnipeg or Canada, they will have no idea what McLean's magazine is. Yeah. This is another Canada centric segment. So McLean's is like a time or a Newsweek time magazine of Canada. Yeah. Der Spiegel of Canada. I don't even know what Der Spiegel is, but I, I see it in Chomsky articles all the time. So in last week's issue of McLean's, there was a cover story talking about racism in Winnipeg, specifically talking about the First Nations, the indigenous population uh, in Winnipeg, probably in part because Winnipeg has the largest urban First Nations population in all of Canada. So there's more reason to be, there's more reason to be racist. racist. And this has kicked up a flurry of opinion, outrage, accolades, signs of polarization. Let me tell you something that has bothered me in the aftermath okay. of this, because although it's great to have this cover story, National Weekly Magazine, trying to talk about racism against First Nations people in Canada and specifically Winnipeg, where we live, the bulk of the article focuses on anecdotes about people experiencing racist behavior from individuals. And, and no connection to some colonial past. And there's, I think there is one passing mention in one quote from someone about colonialism and it, it, it's not delved into at all and they're talking about missing and murdered women but they also talk about how a lot of violence against first nations women is committed by other first nations men but then they don't they're not giving any sort of context as to how the indigenous communities in winnipeg and manitoba and beyond got to the place that they're in and i think the, the problematic outcome of those aspects of the article, the fact that it was for the most part couching in these terms of people say racist things on the street, or there's even, even when they're saying there's discrimination in say rental applications, mm -hmm. they're talking about individual acts by people, which are bigoted, prejudiced, racist acts, but they're not really talking about the big picture of racism as it functions as part of colonialism. And so you end up with this interview that was, on 92 City FM, of all places, by this uh, host named Dave Wheeler. And he interviews the author of this McLean's Wheeler. piece. Like the Jets guy? Maybe. Dave Wheeler, I don't know. He plays beer league hockey in uh, George's division. And so he interviewed Nancy McDonald, the author of this piece. And to him, it's just framed as other people who are acting individually racist, First Nations people. What about all these other things? What about having a Métis mayor? What about, you know, it's just this tit for tat of good things happen, bad things happen. Right. And in the interview, she kind of does a piss poor job mm. in, in the responses to a lot of questions. And she also doesn't really, she doesn't get into the legacy of colonialism. She's not right. talking about the big picture and it kind of comes off like she's just kind of back on her heels trying to defend all these individual statements. You know, for example, there's this story about when Tanya Tagak was in Winnipeg mm -hmm. and she was catcalled on the street by a guy who's then like asking her how much she is right. talking to her like she's a Tanya, sex worker. Tanya Tagak being uh, very, very famous uh, Inuit throat singer. She was here for, uh, I think, for a, th a thing at the Royal Winnipeg Not even Ballet. a throat singer, just a now just a I guess she's, fucking rock musician. Yeah. But, you know, in, when this guy's, this Wheeler guy on the radio, he's 
trying to do this takedown. He's like, oh, you don't mention in the article that the guy that was catcalling her was another indigenous man. But you paint it as anecdotal evidentiary support for this thesis you're putting forward that Winnipeg is Canada's most racist city, right? And from from his perspective, from looking at it as racism being these individual yeah, acts totally by people, de- decontextualized it, from history, it, he's got a he's got a great point, right? right. It's like if you're going to talk about it like that, he's he's saying, oh, this is this is a bullshit fact because you're you're citing one First Nations person making comments that you would interpret as racist behavior towards another First Nations person. Right. So I think there's just it feels to me almost like a, a missed opportunity. And maybe, I mean, whatever, it's co- it's published on the cover of McLean's. Maybe they wouldn't have gone for a story that's, let's dig into the roots of colonialism and talk about how it is pervasive in every Yeah, but nobody would be talking about that. Like, nobody would be up in arms. Everyone would just be like, boring. Yeah. We, yeah, we, we, you, you sensationalize it as saying, yeah. you're the most racist city. And, yeah. you know, and then, but then you just have a bunch of people saying, no, we're not. Yeah, uh, but at, I totally, I, uh, I'm nice to Indians that I see on the street because that's all they think it is. Right. I will say that I, I, I haven't read the article, but what you're, how you're describing it, that sounds fairly predictable that it would be totally decontextualized from history. But at the same time, I've seen a lot of people through social media, a lot of indigenous people mm-hmm. vigorously nodding their heads right. at the anecdotes in the story. Like, yeah. yes, this is what happens. This is finally someone is... This is national attention for what we go through. And the anecdotes are powerful and, yeah, like, they're and awful. super disturbing, they're right? Fucking awful. But and I do think that whatever, ultimately, does it really, the backlash doesn't fucking matter because it's not, it's not about what do individual white Canadians think about this. But what the backlash, think, the backlash is interesting and instructive. Even today, I was listening to CBC, I, again, I haven't read the article. I got the gist of it just from hearing about this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Marcy Marcusa on CBC Radio refers to the uh, the byline, the headline of the McLean's article as a nasty headline. Mm-hmm. You know, she's not a stupid person. She's a smart person. She gets it, I think. But there is a strange backlash even amongst thinking people about, why Winnipeg? Yeah. You know, why not another city? Which is like fucking not the point. Like the first thing that came to my mind when it was like, Winnipeg's the most racist city. I was like, well, yeah, I I probably agree, although... Down deep, I've seen crazier things happen in smaller prairie towns and cities. Mm-hmm. But the best thing another city could do with this is somebody on their tourist bureau would be able to put up a sign outside their city that says, Vancouver, a little less racist than Winnipeg. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's that's all you can, you know, that's all every other Canadian city is going to be able to come up with in response to this. So it's like all this Winnipeg booster crying shit fucking go get no it's fucked. nonsense obviously but i think it's funny you mentioned vancouver because that's another thing in the piece that made me think like ah oh, fuck man this is the wrong it just felt like the wrong approach because they're saying oh you go to vancouver where there's bc has a very large first nations population though i guess maybe not in the urban setting but oh you go there and uh there's public art with, uh, you know, First Nations murals and there's... Uh, the iconography of indigenous cultures in popular white culture. I don't know if that's really... No, it's written into the story as though this is some sort of sign that it's a less racist place. And I don't it see might, that it might all. It might be tipping its hat a little more, but I almost... <laughs> my take on that is it's tipping its hat a little more because that's all unceded territory yeah. legally. Yeah. So it's like, hey, uh, here... Uh, Here's a, Look, we're glad you're here. Hey, thanks hey. for all the land. Yeah, Wait, thanks for really Vancouver. <laughs> Appreciate it. Here's a logo on our fucking hockey sweater. Another thing I noticed in some of the follow-up to this, and maybe even a little bit in the article, but this talk about the racism against indigenous people as being an ethnically-based racism, this word ethnic hmm. comes up over and over again. And I think that in terms of ideas of indigenous nationhood, an indigenous resurgence, the classification as being one of many ethnicities in Canada is kind right. of the opposite of the goal because First Nations people become an ethnicity when they have been completely assimilated into the dominant society and become, oh, these people over here, they're from Pakistan. These people over here, they immigrated from Chile. And these people... They're the Indians. Well, they were here first, but now they're just another category, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to forging a nation to nation relationship, giving back land. It's not the same as just some other ethnic group that's here because they immigrated. Yeah. So, yeah, like, I don't want to come. I mean, whatever. I've never written a fucking 
expose on racism in a major, well, minor Canadian city and had it published in a national magazine. So you I don't haven't? Know, I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. I'm just an asshole talking out my ass, which is what assholes do generally. D- definitely, I think Winnipeggers, all Canadians should read it. If you're hearing this, you live outside of Canada. You should read it to, to get some fucking heart-wrenching, true tales of first-hand experiences of what it's like to be a, uh, an indigenous person in this city and you know they they talk about some of the crazy cases we've had lately of just fucking heartbreaking heartbreaking stories about young indigenous women it's just it's very upsetting i think it's a good time for cbc to start replaying eighth fire with wob canoe because then you get a sense of that it's not just these little isolated interpersonal incidents of rudeness yeah between white people and indigenous people and um it would be a good time for escape velocity listeners who are wondering what we mean by colonialism to go back and listen to our episodes with wob canoe or leanne simpson or ryan mcmahon Mm -hmm. in darkly comedic terms i think the reaction to the article has proven the article in terms of Winnipeggers trying to defend the city mm-hmm. through being racist. <laughs> yes. I did not brave wading into the comments section. I had to look at a few. It's fucking pathetic. Yeah. We live depressing. in a, our society is truly, this city is so stupid. It's so stupid. Generally, generally it's so stupid. We will put a link to that article in the show notes, of course. How many field trips have we actually been on? I don't think any of them have worked out so far. Have they? We didn't do any field trips? I thought we did a couple. No, we just went to movies. I don't think those are true field trips. Oh. We talked about going to the Canadian Museum of Human Rights, didn't we? We made an uninformed, an uninformed, but a a cursory review of the Canadian Museum of Human Rights a few episodes back. Without having been there. Just based on our knowledge of it, some of the controversy surrounding it, some descriptions of the exhibits uh, which they provide on their website. But we did make a plan that we were going to, once it was fully open, go on a field trip, take it all in, digest it, shit it out, and then talk about it. So yesterday then was our inaugural field trip to the Canadian Museum of Human Rights. Yeah, here in Winnipeg, on a fucking frigid, windswept, desolate, barren, depressing Winnipeg morning. So as we probably stated in a previous episode where we talked about the Canadian Museum of Human Rights. It is a national museum, the only one outside of Ottawa built since 1967. And uh, it is an impressive structure located at the confluence of the Red River and the Assiniboine River in downtown Winnipeg at a place called the Forks, which is... A place where you can buy many, many forks. <laughs> and also happens to be an ancient site of trade trade in meeting commerce so this is one of this is probably the most recent and high profile mega project in winnipeg's Mm -hmm. sorted history and according to the harper government the function of the museum is to and i quote explore the subject of human rights with a special but not exclusive reference to canada in order to enhance the public's understanding of human rights to promote respect for others and to encourage reflection and dialogue. Mm. That is the stated purpose of the museum. Mm-hmm. Doesn't sound so bad, does it? Uh, it sounds all right. Maybe a little mealy-mouthed. So it's a very expensive building. It's a very impressive-looking structure. It yeah. looks like a big fucking ball of glass. Spiraling. Yeah, and it's impressive to the tune of $351 million. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of doll hairs. O- over $100 million of which is tax dollar money. Right. And... I, I will say for that kind of money, bzzzt, bzzzt. <laughs> I don't know, man. That's a, when I saw that figure, holy shit. Anyways, we'll get to that. So the government of Canada, the Harper government has allocated somewhere in the ballpark of a hundred million. 
and then other uh, the, the city and province have put in close to another 60 or 80 million I think the friends of the Canadian Museum for Human Rights led by Gail Asper daughter of Israel Asper the visionary for the museum and also a ardent Zionist mm-hmm. anti-Palestinian which we'll get to later have raised over 130 million dollars with the Aspers actually donating 22 million of their own family's dollars their private dollars to this project that's a big chunk in fact David Asper son of Israel Asper wrote in the Toronto Sun in 2012 my family has donated 22 million dollars to the project which is unprecedented in Canadian history no single business family or individual has ever made such a gift to any federal museum ever That's some legacy building shit right there. The project was led by the private sector, and a total of over $130 million has been raised, which again is unprecedented in Canadian history. No Canadian federal museum has ever received this kind of support from private donors. David Asper, Toronto Sun, April 2012. So, I mean, that's a little bit of potential foreshadowing, or to me, an important context in which to consider the whole thing when it's all said and done. Yeah, because one could argue that, in effect, about a third of the museum's budget is directly or indirectly coming from a single powerful family with its fingers in many influential pies across Canada, namely media organizations, and a family which has a very... A family which is outspoken in its ideological support of the state of Israel and its browbeating of any journalist who dares to criticize Israel. Yeah. There's a sordid history there. So there's your your context to begin this whole thing. And I, I put that there because our venture through the halls of the museum isn't actually that scathing. But once understood in that context, the omissions in the museum are the most problematic in retrospect, having been through there. Yeah, it kind of shows you what... $130 $130 million will buy you. And we'll see what Stephen Harper's dollars can buy him on the third or fourth floor of this museum. Yeah. Which is probably the most, outside of the omissions to the museum, is the most absurd inclusion in the yeah. museum. Yeah, an egregious display of state propaganda. So we, the idea was was to take a recorder there and record our thoughts as we went through, but something doesn't seem very appropriate about going through. Once you get there, yeah, it doesn't seem appropriate, especially the way we tend to snicker snicker and sneer and snivel and you know in our tradition of satire our here proud at, french tradition of satire doesn't seem appropriate instead we just walked through we had some of our own private discussions as we went through and, and reviewed the exhibits uh, and then we gave ourselves some time to, to stew on it to think yeah. about it so this is more of a movie review really i don't know why you always have to take me to these like stupid hollywood museums why don't you ever take me to some independent museums of course, this place is, has been dogged by controversy since they first broke ground. Yeah, a lot of which we covered when we talked about this a few episodes back. Right. A lot of people boycotting the museum, including, I mean, a tribe called Red pulled out of the opening ceremonies. Um, this, this is a First Nations uh, kind of electro hip hop yeah. uh, traditional. We've played them on the show before. If you yeah. go back through our catalog, uh, they pulled out. Presumably due to the coverage of First Nations issues or or softball coverage or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the same time, the Métis Federation boycotted the opening ceremonies because the museum wouldn't let Ray St. Germain play. They wanted a more youth-oriented entertainer. Ray St. Germain strikes me as the perfect person. I don't know who that is. You don't? Oh, well, then maybe they have a point. Since you're only fucking 10 years younger than me, you don't fucking know who Ray St. Germain is? One of the most famous Manitobans of all time? And uh, lots of Eastern European groups objected to what they said was a central role in the museum played by the Holocaust, Mm -hmm. which I'm not so sure about having been through the museum. Mm -hmm. Can I just read you how the architect describes the structure itself? Please do. The architect who built this impressive structure, which may not look very impressive in a few years, says the Canadian Museum for Human Rights is rooted in humanity making visible in the architecture the fundamental commonality of humankind. A symbolic apparition of ice, clouds, and stone, set in a field of sweet grass, carved into the earth and dissolving into the sky on the Winnipeg horizon, the abstract ephemeral wings of a white dove 
embrace a mythic stone mountain of 450 million year old Tyndall limestone in the creation of a unifying and timeless landmark for all nations and cultures of the world. There's a certain language that uh, being someone who designs things myself, there is a certain language that people tend to fall into when having to justify why they made something look a certain way. And 99.9% of the time, that language contains pure and utter horse shit. Have you ever described one of your websites as uh, the abstract ephemeral wings of a white dove embracing a mythic stone mountain? I haven't in the past, but I'm sure as fuck going to now. That's how I'm going to describe propaganda records from now. <laughs> but it is nonetheless an impressive structure. It is, uh, it is fascinating to walk through. Uh, you feel like you're... Even though there is a directionality, at times you feel a little bit like you're lost in a maze. You're always seeing multiple layers of different levels, different parts of the building, looking down through to parts that you've passed. And it's, it is very cool uh, in that regard. And I will give kind of kudos because I could not design that. To me, it reminded me of a Bush League attempt at mimicking the Museum of old and new art in Hobart, Tasmania, and Terminal 2 at Pearson International Airport in Toronto. <laughs> Still, impressive. I'm not sure I'm not sure it's going to have legs. I think it's going to look like a fucking joke in 20 years. But you loved it enough to buy a $50 one-year membership. Well, I bought the membership before I actually set foot in any gallery. Mm, I'm just I'm a museum guy. Yeah. I like museums. You know why I like museums? Because you're supposed to be quiet and not fucking talk. And I don't have to talk to anybody in a museum or a library. Uh, That's where you shut up and don't fucking say anything and don't talk to me. I can respect that. That's what I think of free speech. Everybody shut up and don't talk to me. So we enter. Let's let's describe our experience. We enter. We check our jackets and bags at the (laughs) coat check with our automated coat checking robot. Very impressive robot that moves your jacket around. So they don't actually have to walk six feet to get the fucking jacket. I didn't even notice that. Oh, it's very impressive. I paid my $15 admission and uh, we then ascended up the ramp ramp, of souls. The ramp of hope. The ramp of hope. (laughs) To get to the tower of hope eventually. The illuminated ramp of hope. We hoped to get there earlier, but the fucking ramps were so fucking long. So the first section that you come to is an area called... What are human rights? Yes. Which is actually a pretty interesting section because they have on the wall this timeline of events, different color-coded kinds of events throughout recorded human history, all relating somehow to human rights. And I thought this was actually one of the better segments of the museum. I agree. uh, Because it truly was all-inclusive when it came to the regions of the world, various uh, religious and philosophical traditions throughout history, interesting events throughout history, including lots of pieces on the timeline about colonization and the effects on indigenous people. It, so it was, was very much not this sort of, a lot of times when people talk about human rights, they talk about, oh, the Enlightenment and uh, Greek philosophy. And it's very Western centered where this was a much more overarching view of uh, the history of Thoughts and and philosophy, including religious philosophy, about fundamental rights and freedoms. and Yeah, it seemed at the time like an exhaustive timeline, and some inclusions were pretty impressive, but I think we forgot our checklist to see what was missing. Uh, do you remember if the Nakba, the disaster, was included on the timeline? Mm, no, it was not. It was not? Yeah. Hmm. Seems like a strange omission from the Museum of Human Rights for the expulsion of 700,000 Palestinians from their land Mm -hmm. to be missing from the fucking timeline. Yeah. There was a lot of good things on the timeline. Things I was kind of surprised by. But I almost got the sense this morning when I thought about it again that they put a lot of stuff in there to help you not notice what they'd left out. Yeah, that's true. There was also, to me, inexplicable inclusion on the timeline, which was this September 11th attack on the World Trade Center in the Pentagon which I I failed contrasting it with all the other items that were included it didn't make any sense to me because it was a terrorist attack which was had not really any relationship to the timeline of human rights unless you were going to talk about how it launched the war on terror which has been a disaster for the human rights of 
Arabs and Muslims all across the world. So again, you have to think about the underpinning ideology of the powers that be that are administering uh, this museum. And that bothered me. Yeah. Rubbed me the wrong way. Otherwise, a decent timeline that was mildly surprising yep. for two people who presumably you and I went in there looking for stuff to be like, huh, that's yeah. Yeah, that, of course. as I expected. And there was a bit of that, but so far, yeah. so good. Gallery one, not bad, as long as you don't give a fuck about Palestinians. From there, Chris, we ventured into the Indigenous Perspectives exhibit, which I thought when I had read the description on the museum's website, I was kind of excited about it. I thought, oh, maybe they've actually taken it seriously. Maybe they've taken the fact that this is a museum that is built on Treaty 1 territory in a colonial country with an incredibly sad and violent history when it comes to the interactions and dealings and treatment of indigenous people. Maybe they're going to take this seriously and really get down to it in this indigenous perspectives exhibit. And I think it's fair to say that I was roundly disappointed uh, with this exhibit. I mean, it was good. It was cool. It was interesting. Uh, But it is, in fact, exactly what it said, which is indigenous perspective. So... It was about in the indigenous take on the idea of rights, on the on the idea of responsibilities of humans to the land and to the earth, which was interesting. And this was done through art and some film, uh, but it's a very small area mm-hmm. and with just a, a few little installations. Well, it's, it's a big area, but it's small in content. I guess it's small in content, yeah. Which I think is generally what the museum is, a large area with little content. Yeah, but... It's not that the Indigenous Perspectives area was bad, but I th- I thought that it was, yeah, it was lacking more or it needed, if that's all that section was going to be, there needed to be another section, you know, again, hearkening back to Harper's statement about what the goal of the Human Rights Museum is. If, if it's not exclusively, but primarily a Canadian focus on human rights, you have to fucking address the primary yeah. issue of human rights in Canada, which is the fact that we're a colonial country. So yeah. there needs to be an additional section if that's all this indigenous perspectives area was. Yeah, for, for the purposes of dialogue, I think it failed. Yeah. There. It's, it's, uh, it's softball. It was kind of clever. Like they had Tayaki Alfred quoted with a picture of him. So they have... A, I mean, a, a, a radical indigenous thinker. Yeah, which which... Leaves you with the impression, hey, wow, they talked to somebody that actually says things that would make somebody have to reflect and would get people's backs up, the yeah. average Canadian. But they didn't include any of that stuff. And they yeah. just talked about the way of life or the, the philosophy. And if you want dialogue in Canada about Indigenous struggles vis-a-vis the Canadian state, how do you not have an entire section about Oka or Grassy Narrows? Yeah. Or, like, how is Oka not... <laughs> Why isn't there a giant picture uh, from Oka? It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, the, I guess they, they would say, well, it's a museum, not of human wrongs. It's a museum of human rights. You know, they're trying to, it's a feel good section. Mm-hmm. It's like where you can nod thoughts. That's right. Yes. It is. Yeah. It's a feel good ah, section. Yes. The, the mythical, honorable, noble savage. Yeah. There's a, there is in that indigenous perspectives section, there's a, there's a touch of that noble savage. I mean, they're including. It's all indigenous voices, like yeah. in, in the film and in the art uh, and in the you know interactive displays. But uh, given that mostly it's non-indigenous people going through there, I th- the overall impression, I think it can leave that taste in your mouth. It's like, oh, look at their interesting take on how to exist in the world and yeah. you know what rights and responsibilities are, but not there's nothing that, there's nothing that suggests we have to do anything. Yeah. As, as citizens it's of, like, of hey, the state. Look at this interesting thing over here. Oh, isn't that curious what they think of things? Anyway, moving on. Yeah, well, th- and that's, I mean, ultimately, the museum is a bit of an Epcot center. Uh, like, you know, a world showcase. Yeah. Where you have these quick little palatable bites of every little thing. Well, not every little thing of, of what's on what's on show, but there's no real depth to anything. But, mm-hmm. uh, but. I think we ultimately thought that was one of the strengths of the museum for a population, a citizenry. Who knows fucking nothing. Who know nothing about anything. But you'd think, the more I think about it, the more I think the museum's bullshit, especially when we get to the the section on Canadian military adventurism in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. It's 
it doesn't actually ask you any hard questions. It doesn't make you make you angry or like whoa or defensive or no. or anything. Yeah, which it should. There's but good, we'll but but we'll get to that. Yeah, let's, let's go. Let's go. Uh, so moving on from indigenous perspective, you go into this sort of what did you call it? It's like a section of uh, a market. It's like a market, or it's like a section of bodegas. Yeah, it's like a flea market <laughs> of human rights history in in uh, in the world. Yeah, which isn't bad. But no, I mean obviously it's kind of it's kind of. It's like fuck. In a way, in a way, you can see how it, it's one of the few approaches you could take to try to cover all these bases, right? Because there's, I mean, there's so many things you can talk about. So it's this large area where there's these little stalls, and each stall is talking about a particular issue, often in relation to Canada. You know, they talk about the Chinese head tax and the railroad and the internment, and they talk about. There's a section on labor struggle and missing murder, on, indigenous women, migrant labor, you know, gay marriage, uh, violence against women, trying to preserve uh, languages, disability rights, underground railroads. Like it covers all these little, you know, with these little interesting exhibits, which is all good. Uh, again, you would think that this would, if you're going to even make a token nod, this would be the place where you would have a little stall about Palestinian dispossession mm-hmm. but of course that is absent as not even there not even in the, in the marketplace not even in the flea market in the, the, in the flea market of human rights abuses and, and i think i think the the flea market it didn't strike me so much on the second visit i've been there twice on the first visit it struck me once i passed the flea market and went up to the next zone which i believe was the holocaust mm-hmm. presentation i was like well fuck this is why people are mad about the holocaust taking primacy over everything else why didn't it just get a stall mm-hmm you know how come it's how come it's got a whole fucking floor to itself and then everybody else either gets a flea market stall or they get nothing that's how i can imagine people seeing that but on my second visit it didn't bother me as much because right. because i think the holocaust section is actually quite powerful yeah and says some very important things we'll get to that in a second but yeah. the, there were a few things that struck me i it's just this recurring theme of again trying to always keep in mind okay we're supposed to be taking a a canadian perspective we're supposed to be having a discussion about human rights as it relates to canada as much as possible right so when i was going around these stalls and you know reading reading the plaques interacting with the displays i kept trying to keep this in mind like are we challenging ourselves are we trying to like push back against our own actions and our own history to try to understand and learn and become better when it comes to enhancing human rights in this country. And again and again, I was just finding total failures in that regard. Some of the examples I made note of, for example, there was a plaque. This was actually a little earlier on, but there's this plaque about the forks and they're talking about uh, how these two rivers have been inhabited by generations by Métis and about how, you know, the leader of the Red River Rebellion, Louis Riel, oh, he's actually... uh, buried in this particular but they they tell this little story but they completely leave out the fact that you know that leader of the rebellion and the Métis people here in Manitoba he was actually murdered by the Canadian state for treason you know, executed for treason it's kind of like death by a thousand cuts of glossing over all the incriminating pieces of, of Canada's past and when including incriminating pieces it's always followed up by and this is how we fixed it you know, so there's the bit. There's a little stall on residential schools. We closed them all. This in happened. 1996. We closed them. Stephen Harper issued an apology. Done. Yeah. You know, and and even in, in the residential school flea market stall, you know, they have this quote, this really incriminating quote emblazoned on the wall, describing how the goal was to tame the savage Indian, take the Indian out right. of the man or kill, whatever, kill the Indian. But of course, they're taking a quote from. Duncan Campbell Scott, who was deputy superintendent of Indian affairs, when in fact they could have just taken an almost identical quote from fucking Prime Minister Sir John A. Macdonald from the same time, who's saying the same shit. And wouldn't that make a different impact on how people thought about, mm-hmm. you know, they assign it to this deputy super, superintendent. Yeah. It's just another, it's a little minimizing step to kind of let people distance themselves and to maintain their hero worship of these major figures in Canadian history, you know, when in fact, almost all the way down the line, you're talking about people who have done heinous criminal shit. Mm -hmm. 
And the same thing with like the stall on the on the Winnipeg general strike. You know, they say, oh, yeah, following the strike, uh, workers have bargained for better rights and, uh, you know, union membership rose, etc., etc. But then, you know, what is the context this is being put up in? This is in the same time period when the government of Canada is breaking unions, essentially, yeah. at Canada Post and Air Canada, making it illegal for the unions there to go on strike. Well, There's just devoid of context. Yeah, the general strike one in particular is a museum period piece. It's like, hey, look at this crazy old old time with people dressing like this and acting crazy. But that, I, the residential school one I, I thought was, I mean, the life-size photos of the classroom and the priest with the with the indigenous kids holding their hands up in prayer, they're fucking heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And that was a theme that I think that kind of ran throughout because again, I mean, I think the people that are putting together these exhibits and, and, you know, there's people working hard to try to make these as powerful as they can. You and know, I don't want I don't want to shit on the people who are putting this together. And there's a lot of obstacles involved. There's, I'm sure, a huge amount of red tape. Everything, every word has to be vetted. Everything has to be approved. And they're trying the best to try to make as much of an impact as they can in this limited space, mm-hmm. given these constraints. But the exclusions and... The whitewashing just it just kept it just kept hitting me as I went mm-hmm. through these exhibits, and I don't always want to be the guy who's just like trying to pick on every little thing because I think there can be too much of that. But but given a three hundred fifty million dollar project, and given and given that it's a federal level major institution being built, I think it is right to be hyper to, to criticize it. But yeah. I mean, especially since they they're saying they want to create reflection and dialogue, you don't actually create meaningful reflection or any dialogue if it's whitewashed. So the flea market bodega display of uh, human rights violations is like everything in the museum, in some ways disappointing, in some ways very powerful. I can see somewhat why it's set up like that. Well, for um, sure. but Because at the same time, you and me are walking through it. We're not really having these thoughts on the spot. We're actually, we're kind of immersing ourselves, mm-hmm. even in these little flea market bodegas. Yeah, And we're watching classrooms of kids who know nothing about the world, whose parents, whose media tell them nothing about the world, walking through the museum, actually sort of looking like they're interested in what's happening. And this is probably going to be their only exposure to any of these ideas at any point through their entire school experience. Mm-hmm. So ascending up the ramp of hope from the uh, from the bodegas. The bodega of despair. This brings you to the third level, which is the, the section on... Begins on the, with the, the Holocaust. On the Nazi Holocaust, which I think... So as you mentioned a little earlier, I did think this section was super well done, mm-hmm. super heavy. And in fact, it surprised me in how wide-ranging and inclusive it was in terms of you know discussing the, the ranges of groups of people who were affected, targeted, murdered under the Nazi Holocaust. You know, having whole individual uh, panels of the section dedicated to communists, to homosexuals, to Roma, mm-hmm. to people with disabilities. Uh, so it didn't it didn't focus exclusively on the Jewish Holocaust, but it, it spread the misery, as it were. It's almost you know, even if you're going to go just to see that. I know that, especially of of our generation. I don't know what it's like in schools or whatever now, but it seemed like even from the time I was in junior high you get repeated education on the holocaust and then through hollywood and everything else but this is a pretty heavy exhibit yes it's very upsetting there was another really interesting aspect uh, near the end of that section where they talk about the definition of genocide and uh, they're talking about you know uh, raphael lemkin who coined the term after the holocaust talking about his ruminations on it and they have this interactive display where uh, they talk about the the three different aspects of genocide, physical tactics, cultural tactics, and biological tactics uh, used in order to enact a genocide. And they use four different case studies in each one, like the same case study in each one from throughout history, to demonstrate how it was used in that particular case. And one of the examples that they use is the Spanish conquest of uh, the Americas in the 1400s. And the, the really interesting part that I thought was really good was they explicitly talk about how Raphael Lemkin linked, he made an intrinsic link between colonization and genocide, saying that almost always when you have a colonizer, 
they are in effect attempting to affect a genocide because the whole point of the colonization is to take over the land and eradicate the culture and language mm-hmm. that was there. But then the fact that, again, let's look back at the Canadian perspective, reflecting on Canada's role in, in human rights. They choose the Spanish conquest of the Americas and not the British-French conquest of Canada, which has all of the same fucking factors at play. Every single one of those three aspects of Anatian genocide is equally applicable in Canada's case. And yet they use the Spanish conquest of the Americas as their case study. Yeah. And it's just it's just so infuriating to me. It's so transparent, you know, that you're enacting state propaganda through the omission of the most obvious example that you could use. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I thought it was uh, really great to see that they're actively talking about colonization as a force for genocide in the world. You know, that frankly surprised me. But again, the omission of Canada from all responsibility yep. from playing a role in that uh, drove me fucking Hey, we batty. said sorry. What else do you want from us? We said sorry. <laughs> what more can we do? So from there... We, yeah, so, so from, I don't know, it kind of goes downhill from there. From there, it's just softball there, shit. There are like, there's these kind of interesting exhibits where you where you walk up and a video starts playing and you can interact with, and they're obviously changeable. They have them set up this way that they can insert new issues as they're developed. And, you know, they're covering uh, things like, you know, indigenous rights in various parts of the world. They're talking about portrayal of women in media. They're talking about human trafficking. They're touching on a lot of the bases there. And there's these interesting exhibits to that effect. But as you go up from that point, it's just things get kind of less and less. There's, there's a take action area where you're supposed to take little cards and yeah. write down what you think you should do. And there's an interactive video game where you're supposed to learn empathy and yeah. uh, and respect. And Well, the, ra- the writing on cards provides the illusion of dialogue and reflection mm-hmm. where, where i guess it's it's one of the more useful places to actually see any dialogue because the museum's not willing to participate in it mm-hmm. the museum is just gives you the bare minimum without creating controversy and then you go and see what people write on these notes that they put up on the wall and people are writing reasonable things that mm-hmm. aren't even that are glossed over especially in the Canadian mission to Afghanistan section where it's like yeah that is the most so talk about propaganda talk about that one a little bit because that was so absurd to me I could not believe well, the extent and breadth the fact that it was even in there in the fucking first place yeah that's the Harper's fingerprints are all over that yeah it's as if the museum said to themselves who would be the best person to curate an exhibit on a military intervention in Afghanistan and somebody said I know Don Jerry <laughs> because yeah. it's basically just this self-aggrandizing it's, it's propaganda it's pure it's propaganda. pure propaganda there's nothing there's no dialogue it's anti-dialogue yeah they have a, they have a couple pictures of, of uh, people protesting the mission uh, with the, the captions which imply that the two sides of the coin are people who protested the invasion and the people who supported the troops <laughs> yeah just absolutely and then mind-numbing and then uh romanticized photos of canadian soldiers uh with smiling Af- afghani children and then a, a whole wall of post-it notes that they provide the general public with of people writing criticisms about about the exhibit saying this is both like kids in kids handwriting yeah this is yeah there was a there was a sizable number of what i thought were reasonable critiques of the mission and even like even at its most softball were kids saying only send aid don't stop the war you know like no more killing because fucking kids know that it's crazy yeah so that was truly i think if i was possibly that was the most disappointing out of everything because i fully expected they're not going to call out canada's role in fucking committing an ongoing genocide against first nations people they're not going to fucking you know because it's funded by the state of canada they're not going to call out israel's colonization and dispossession of palestinians because it's funded basically a third by the aspers but i did not expect to have outright pro-war state propaganda in there so that was very disappointing to me yeah and then i ascended up the uh spire to the top while you cowered below yeah i don't like those heights that they have it's uh it's more like at that point it's the museum of human heights (laughs) 
I actually thought it would be higher. I thought it would be more freaked out Fuck up there. But, well, it, it, you know what? It would be the perfect spot for an indoor roller coaster. Ooh. And that's, I mean, given that this is basically the Epcot Center of human rights. And given that a vocal majority of Winnipeg Sun readers, in fact, wanted this to be a water park rather than the Canadian Museum of Human Rights. They could have done both. You know, it should have been, instead of the ramps, it should have been a log ride. You know, like a flume ride, you get yeah, into a yeah, log yeah. and you go through and you see all the, you go through the bodegas and you go through the Holocaust thing on a log. Yeah. And then at the end, there's a real long, like a splash mountain yeah, a drop. Yeah. Yeah. And then that's how you get back down rather than taking the elevator or the ramp. Yeah. That'd be fucking awesome. See, why don't they ask us to design this shit? So overall, it's a joke, but it's a joke that's better than nothing for yeah, and, for for the citizenry. And I think, I mean, like we talked about in our pre-review several episodes back, all content aside, ignoring the content, you have to go in eyes wide open knowing that the only reason that the Canadian state funds this fucking thing and makes a big deal about it is because it is useful in maintaining Canada's image as this progressive bastion of forward thinking human rights despite all of Canada's misadventures at home and abroad which continue and in fact in many ways are intensifying especially under the ultra right wing conservative ideology of Stephen Harper's government it just it serves this function to soften the blow to to maintain the fucking charade that canada is this progressive peaceful nation so you have to have eyes wide open knowing that that's this whole reason for this thing's existence yeah also it's a taxpayer boondoggle all of this stuff the entire content of the museum could be squeezed into one room into an annex in the manitoba museum and you could have encouraged more people to go there instead of spending all these taxpayer dollars on this crazy building at the Forks. And you would have had the same effect. In fact, I would argue that the, the Manitoba Museum does a better job of creating dialogue about human rights than the Museum of Human Rights. So would you recommend to Winnipeggers, would you say that it is worth going and, yeah. and checking this out? I would say yes. I, w- I would say yeah. don't bother with the membership because I don't think there's that much to get. There's not enough content. Mm-hmm. It, it's not as rewarding on you're multiple gonna, visits like the Mantua Museum yeah, where spe- every time you go to the Mantua Museum you're like fuck I'm glad I every came time here. because it's content heavy it's yeah. there's a density to the content there yeah. where the Museum of Human Rights is so spartan in what it tells you and what it asks you yeah. that you, in three hours you can basically see the entire museum and be fucking bored by the time you get past the third floor so go see it once and then ask Stephen Harper for your money back later don't buy a membership like I did and I'll, now I'll have to go wandering through there to justify it. I'm going to have to go there and fucking write angry post-it notes on the wall for the next year. What do you say? Should people go there or do you think Yeah, no? I would say, uh, you know, like I think Ruth wants to go. I'll go there again. Of course Ruth, Ruth wants to go. She's fucking Ukrainian. I think it's worthwhile to check out in terms of whatever, man. I wouldn't, don't make the trip to Winnipeg to do it. No. It's not in the way that I would almost say, yeah, it's worth it to uh, flood in New York to go see... Uh, Museum of Natural History and the Met yeah. and the fucking Guggenheim. This, no. this is, this. I'm, I'm not joking. If you're familiar with Epcot Center, the World Showcase, which is 12 or so Disney-fied stereotypes of different countries in the world where you walk around this lake and you go to visit each country, this is the human rights version of the World Showcase. And I'm not fucking flying to Orlando to go to the World Showcase. <laughs> I'm flying there for Space Mountain and Haunted Mansion and don't forget to get your fast pass. Here we are again. Episode which, or segment what, of this fucking little segment. Astute listeners will notice that there is no G7005 installment. We're not? And that's because... Who wants to hear us talk about a Noam Chomsky oh. spoken word CD? No one. Everybody knows Chomsky's better live. Uh, so here we are. Rhythm active number five. G7006. Yeah. So rhythm this, activism. Rhythm activism. Canada's own. Belongs to the country of Canada. Rhythm activism. They were uh, touted as Canada's longest running anarchist project. Really? Interesting. Well, Norman said that. Norman, <laughs> Norman, Norman was the ultimate hustler. Rhythm activism was a project based out of Montreal, of course, uh, 
uh, there's nowhere else it could have been based on. No, there's no other province in Canada this could have been based out of. So we're talking about uh, Norman Novrotsky, who is like a Canadian institution to us anyway. He's a Canadian yes. institution of music, activism, anarchism, poetry, art, anarchism, sexual writing. community health. Yeah. A great storyteller. Great storyteller. And so Rhythm Activism was a project that he did primarily, I guess him and uh, Sylvain right, Cote. Right, the guitar player, right? Yeah, it was kind of their project and they worked with other musicians uh, through the time. They they toured with the X, been all over the world. I don't even know how to describe this band. This I like a, do. Take it away. I would describe this band as a cross between the Dead Kennedys. Interesting. The X. Mm-hmm. Tom Waits. Yes. And Sesame Street. <laughs> All wrapped up in a cabaret performance. Yeah. Yeah. Cabaret. That's the right word. I was thinking like uh, it's theatrical. It's got there's a carnival sort of yeah. atmosphere to it. Fuck what a weird record. It is. And uh, the record title. Jesus was gay. Jesus was gay, which is clearly wrong. Clearly wrong. Everybody knows that he loved the ladies. There, There is no actual claim on the record that the historical Christian Jesus Christ was actually a homosexual. <laughs> no, I don't think he's trying to make an historical statement no. fact. So extreme Christians, please do not come here and shoot us. Uh, <laughs> so the rest of Canada has to be like, je suis Chris and Derek. <laughs> almost would be, it be worth ju- it. Do you think it'd be Je Suis Chris and Derek or Je Suis Derek and Chris? Or would it just be Je Suis Chris? <laughs> Sometimes I wonder that. I, I don't wonder. I know that's what it would be. <laughs> well, I would say Je Suis Derek. Before I, I die, I would Je Suis Derek. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. You had never heard this record. I had, you revealed to me. Just now, as we sat and listened to this record. You told us in your resume that you thoroughly <laughs> listened to all of our releases. I probably did say that. You did say that. Yeah. And you hadn't. fucking lied. Now I, I know. Done. This is lie number two. What was the first lie? But alive. Because I had never listened to that whole record through either. To sit down and listen to it as a whole record is a little bit, little bit. Um, uh, the record doesn't have a lot of flow. No. No, it's a it's a sort of a mishmash yeah. of different styles. Um, the problem the problem isn't the mishmash. The problem is the actual sequencing of the record. I think. Yeah, it's almost like um, I kept thinking of like, you know, folk tales. Like a lot of these songs, he's telling stories. They're either true historical stories, yeah, like the um, Helen Armstrong or uh, Sam Mike, the Yarder. Sam the Yarder is that a true story? I thought so. Uh, Mike Switson. That's true. Mike, Mike Swiston. Yeah, he's from Manitoba. But it almost, you know, especially that song, Jack Daw, it's like, it's almost like a, you know, the horror movie trope mm-hmm. of like the wrong that must be avenged mm-hmm. through a haunting. And it's really cool that way. There's all these stories. I A lot of it I kept thinking uh, would be really great to listen to with kids, I think, mm-hmm. because, yeah. you know, for the less heavy yeah. songs because it's like it's interesting and Norman's voice he's always putting on different voices and there's yeah. this exciting music in the background and and you're you know learning something it's yeah. it's like a people's it's like a mini people's history of Canada yeah that's what I meant about the Sesame Street comment mm-hmm. it wasn't it wasn't actually a, a diss it oh was, I know that uh, yeah. some of his voices actually resemble a few characters on Sesame Street and it's storytelling and he's and Norman unlike everybody else involved in making fucking music isn't excluding children from yeah the ultimate output yeah he's he just naturally is like hey everybody's gonna be listening to this yeah and i was reading in like in his comprehensive bio on his website he talks about how he talks about how rhythm activism as a project it wasn't meant just to be a band but they worked with activist groups to write songs that would Hmm. work on an issue for that activist group and they would do family friendly shows that were explicitly meant for kids Hmm. you know to do that exact thing do this storytelling and uh you know get kids excited and involved and and then they would tour when someone asked them to tour if someone wanted to bring them to a country then they would go and they'd play bars or whatever and you know do a rowdy show so they were super dynamic uh, style and and uh function unlike Mm -hmm. any other band you know that struck me on listening we were sitting here listening to the record a few minutes ago and the first track came on in the, the first darkest track, hour. The first track came on in the darkest hour. 
which I have probably heard, at least back when we put this out, I probably heard it 100 times. It's a great song. It is. It's a great song. And back then it never hit me like it did tonight. You didn't get it. But uh, tonight playing it back, I was like, holy shit. This, this is reality. It's real. Yeah. Yeah. This is what I actually think about, what I lay awake at night in the darkest hour. Yeah, he got it. He fucking nailed it. He saw my future and he wrote a song about it. <laughs> he should have called that one Chris Hanna. Chris, you lay awake in the dark wondering why you never did anything to stop anything bad that happens in the world. <laughs> Chris, you're just a fucking washed up rock and roll loser. Chris, you sit in your basement drinking Bud Light Limes. That's all you can do now. Chris, you're a waste of skin. (laughs) But yeah, when this record hits home, it's heavy. And when it misses, what sticks out to me the most when it misses is, is the recording quality. Yeah. It sounds like it was made pretty quick. Some of the songs sound like they're performed pretty quickly or live. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely get that live. And, uh, well, that's what strikes me anyways. I just think too bad it wasn't recorded better. A recurring theme. A recurring theme in 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 our G7s. Yeah. But I think the record for all those things, like for all its quirkiness and all over the map-ness, on the one hand, I think it's crazy that G7 put this out Mm -hmm. because what the fuck, man? No, it's who's going to buy it and what played out? No one fucking bought it, right? It is one of the, again, especially from the early days, I, I guess I guess when it was all idealism mixed with a heavy dose of uh, naivety and stupidity, mm-hmm. um, it was just like, is the idea of the record great? Yes. Yes. Put it out. That's it. And then maybe as time went on, uh, we tried to make some more consideration for not driving ourselves into the ground. Well, but... But, 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 but I, I am also, on the other hand, on the other hand... I'm also glad that G7 put it out, documented it, and put it out into the world because what a fucking thing. Like, just listening to it now, almost 20 years later, it's still there, you know? The fucking thing's still on iTunes. No reviews. Here's a, here's a <laughs> challenge. It. Here's a challenge. We should, actually. Listeners, go review Jesus Was Gay on iTunes and make your mark on history. It's a good record. It's like not a great record. There's great moments on it. But yes. It's not. We even, should we talk about his sex shows? No. No. Um, I would say, though, I wanted to get in there that this, it's a good record, but if you want to hear a great rhythm activism record, Blood, Blood and Mud. Blood and mm-hmm. that's the That's the record that convinced us to put out a, a rhythm activism record. You know what we don't have yet what? on this segment for this record is the backstory. Which I, I don't possess the backstory because this is before my time. You I don't always remember have these, the backstory. You don't remember how this record came to be? You must. Well, I remember wanting to put out Blood and Mud. And Norman was like, no, we got a new one we're working on. Don't worry about Blood and Mud. That's in the past. Let's do this new one. I have an idea for it. It's called Jesus Was Gay. And I was like, okay, uh, sure. So because we just did things willy-nilly we just said okay put it out let us know when you're done we'll put it out and then we put this out that's the backstory really i think maybe one of their best songs that we put out was not actually on this record but we released it years later on a on, comp. on our one and only g7 compilation cd that's Kate right penicillin now that's right um it's called down in the mines how I, did you know about this did you know about the song before yes i lobbied for it to be on the record to be the first song and they just got cut. And Norman said, Don't worry about the sequence, Chris. We've got that covered. We'll put this on something in the future. I said, Okay, Norman. We dig in the mines down below. Down below. We dig in the mines. to the world all the wealth that we mine yet we're slaves to the mines down below we're stripped to the waist 
like serfs of old, down in the regions where coal is unknown. Our masters have made us for ages untold. They're slaves in the mines down below. They're slaves. So rhythm activism, Jesus was gay, recommended as an experiment, as an experiment for listeners' ears. Thumbs up, another proud moment in G7 history for me. Yeah, a weird and proud, another weird and proud moment. Accidentally proud moment. And if you ever see Norman Navrotsky coming through your town, you know, maybe your college campus or whatnot, or your local coffee shop doing some kind of show or other, it's always something different. I don't go to college. Fucking go. Go and check it out because it never disappoints. And if you ever see Norman Navrotsky at your college campus dressed as a seven-foot penis, do not punch him in the face. Thanks for tuning in for episode 28 of Escape Velocity Radio. That's usually the number where most podcasts die. You know that? Interesting uh, little bit of trivia there. Hmm. To read show notes, join the discussion, or listen to our archives, which you will be doing very soon, visit our website at escapevelocityradio.com. If you like the show and want to support it, please rate and review us on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or SoundCloud by searching for Escape Velocity Radio. And you can also send us feedback via email at feedback at escapevelocityradio.com. There's an hour of night in the blackest of night. Maybe the hour of night will die when we all start thinking. We think and we sigh. We think about how we've become much less than what we might have been. And about how to become so much more than who we are. And we all start thinking. Yeah, we all start thinking. about who we loved, who we lost.
again about where to go, where we've come from, and where we should have been. We think about dreams that tempt us to wild to live, dreams that get us drunker. (laughs) 